next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to intentionally focus on a couple of chapters in Acts, using them as jumping off points to look at a culture of idolatry and what it looks like to be sent into a culture of idolatry. Um, Several years ago, I got to go to Greece when I was on sabbatical, and I think I have a couple pictures. So if you would put up the first picture there. Yeah, so there's me, the top of my forehead and my hair. But what, the point of this picture is I'm, I'm having dinner, and behind me is the Acropolis and the, and the Parthenon up there. It rises above everything around the city in Greece. It stands out. It's everywhere. It can be seen from everywhere. So go to the next picture. Um, This is a view standing at the foot of Mars Hill, which I'll explain in a second, looking up to the the Parthenon. And there was many temples up there where idols were and the gods were and where worship would have happened and stuff. And then go to the next picture. This picture is looking from the top of the Acropolis up at the Parthenon down over this part of the city. And what's in the immediate foreground where you can see people is a rock and it's a hill. And that's called Mars Hill. And when you walk up the steps on that rock, there's a bronze plaque with the words that we are about to read carved on it. Paul's walking around in Athens and he's distressed. Why? Here's the words. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 and following. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not too far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, 
Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word, which is not only printed on the pages here, but in part is engraved in bronze on a rock in Athens. Lord, would you write it on our hearts that we would live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I googled idol. All you will see is pages of American Idol, or at least on mine. I don't even watch American Idol, but maybe it's catered for me for some reason. I don't know. You know, um, American Idol, you know, um, that's, that show is like old, I feel like, but maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's like decades old, right? Because there's lots of pop culture singers who have come through and been declared the American Idol. And that's the thing of the show, right? That's the attraction. All these people having their chance, their shot to try and to become the American Idol. And they before the judges and the judges talk and say yes or no. And if they get on to the final, then the judges say, congratulations, you have done it. You're the American Idol. I wonder if Paul walked around our city, our community, walked around Richmond, Virginia, would he be distressed? Would he see idols, places full of temples to our gods of beauty, of sports, of food, of music, of sensual pleasure, of justice, of political heroes? And yet so many of our icons and images today are on this, right? And in the cloud, on our phones and in the cloud, A Google survey revealed that 93 million selfies are taken every day. Except for that that survey was taken in 2015. Can't imagine it got smaller. Right? Maybe we have become the idol. Even my picture in Athens, right? I had to be in the picture. There I am, the idol. I made it. Maybe we have become the idol. My hope, I guess, in going through what we're going to do in this little series leading up to Easter and is that I want our eyes to be open and our ears to be open and our hearts to be open to see what our own idols might be. Our idea of God or your denial of God shapes the way you live life, your values and your philosophy of life. And if we don't know the true and living God, then what we will begin to do is invent, create, fashion, craft, form God into something that we like, that we're okay with, that is comfortable, that is manageable. And what we will have done is made an idol. And that's what Jeremiah warned against, as we read earlier, and it's what Paul is noting in Athens. So there's three things I want to do today with you, and and, um, it's three ways looking at what Paul has has done here in Athens. And the first is, uh, he builds bridges for sharing the gospel. And you may have noticed this, um, when when he goes in, how does he start proclaiming the gospel? He meets with people, right, in the synagogue and other places, and simply put, he goes to the public spaces, he goes to the markets, he goes where the people are, and he starts talking to them about Jesus and a resurrection, and they're like, this is 
amazing. We've never heard this before, but it's also kind of weird. And, and um, could you talk to us more about this? And now that's a, that's a great opportunity in one sense, right? But I'm trying to put myself in Paul's shoes thinking, I don't know, because they call him the babbler. He's a preacher. He's gone around all over places talking to people, and he gets to Athens, and they're like, you lowly babbler, we don't even understand what you're talking about. Because they're the philosophers of the world. And they're like, but come talk to us. I'd be like, I don't know, I'd be a little nervous about that. But Paul's like, no, I'm going. And so he goes, and he builds bridges. And the way he builds bridges, of course, is he talks to them about the unknown God. He says, I see you have a statue to an unknown God, an idol to an unknown God. I want to tell you about that God. And he builds bridges to their culture in that way. Just a real quick question I guess I have is, what, what do we do when we are distressed or disturbed about something? Okay, because it said that Paul was distressed. It is our first reaction when we're distressed, disturbed, when we disagree, is, is our first reaction to build a bridge or to build a wall? Right? I mean, what, I think we're really good at drawing lines and putting up walls and firing shots from, from towers, you know, from our safe positions, like archers launching down and attacking. We're good at noting what we disagree about and then saying, yes, but I disagree with you about this. But are we good at building bridges? Are we good at finding ways, things that we have in common to say, hey, these things are good. Let's talk about this. Rather than defend and attack, I want to encourage you to to be a bridge builder. First, first, build bridges. The second thing Paul does is he knows the idols of the culture. And and I want to talk to you about this a little bit in this specific sense of what's going on about these two groups of people that are gathered here because he knows who he's talking to. He's talking to people, the Epicureans and the Stoics. They had very different ideologies and philosophies about life, but they were both the driving force uh, in life, their ideologies, their, their view of the gods was the driving force in their life and they were loyal to and served or worshipped whatever they thought that was. And so it's important that Paul understood that and it informs what he says later to them. Epicureans. The Epicureans, their life philosophy was to seek maximum pleasure and minimize pain. This was not merely like a sensual, hedonistic pleasure, though it could have included that, but also include things like peace of mind, friendship, contentment, living a quiet life, uh, you know, with kind of small circles. You don't want to get out there too far because the more people you know, the more pain that enters life, the more suffering, the more responsibility you take, the more suffering, the more difficulty and stress and so forth. So live a simple life. Be mindful. Be simple. Sound familiar at all? We have a lot of this in our culture today as well, I think. The gods they believed did not create the universe, nor did they inflict punishment or bestow blessings upon people. Um, And there certainly was no resurrection. The gods were just conceived of as the people who were supremely happy. And they wanted to be that way, supremely happy. Make me supremely happy in life. That was their goal. One life to live. Don't worry, be happy. Modern Epicureanism for us, I mean, a lot of similarities, right? Be who you want to be, leisure, luxury, cooking shows, farm-to-table restaurants, breweries and wineries with friends. And by the way, not all of this is bad, right? This is just, but it's, 
This is similarities we have. Vacations, escapes from the busyness of life, pornography, hookups, feeling the weights and burden in life, and then caving to some kind of addiction that develops. That's the Epicurean kind of life. That I want to be happy, and I want to minimize pain, and I'll pursue pleasure however I can to cling to that, because that's my God. It's what makes me happy. The Stoics were different. They were spiritualists, uh, but they were more like pantheists. They believed the gods were in everything around them. And so uh, they lived lives with, with values and principles that they held that were important and significant. Unity of mankind was supreme. Moral uh, duty uh, to behave virtuously, to act with wisdom, and uh, to be courageous and just and temperate. Those are some of their values, right? They, they figured you can't avoid suffering in life. You're going to face it. So have some values that anchor you and grin and bear it and make your way through it. It's kind of their philosophy on life. Do the best you can with the responsibility you've been given. And so in that, then they had that high value on individual responsibility and an idea of community and the, and the unity of mankind, a high ideal of justice and, and rightness, but little practical concept of grace. Their philosophy is more like karma. Uh, if, you, if it happens to you, you probably deserve it. You're just getting what you deserve. So what's modern stoicism? I don't know. I mean, I can think of people who I think of like Stoic, like a lot of the World War II generation, right, who did their duty and served because it was right. It's what needed to be done. There's a big comeback of Stoicism today. Actually, there's a whole uh, organization devoted to it, multiple organizations and groups devoted to it. Um, but think about even the younger generation that wants, that believes there is thing as justice and wants to see change in the world or even in their society and they work to do that. Now, their virtues about how they go about doing it might be different, but they're like, we have responsibility. That's different from simple Epicureanism. It's like, no, there's duty that must be done. Right? It's a kind of stoicism, probably. Lacking some of the virtues, maybe. Maybe extolling others of those virtues. But they view themselves as responsible for civic life. Also, there's the things more individually for us, like the rise of those who help shape life in in good ways, right? Like we need life coaches or CrossFit that helps us get ready and bullet journaling and, and um, all the things that we do in life to try to establish discipline, order, routine, so that we can be best we can be and responsible in life. Those would be similar to stoic kinds of values. And so we have similarities with the people that Paul is talking to, right? He knows the idols of his culture. He knows the people. And he shows them those idols are not enough. This is the third thing. The last thing I want to talk to you about today is showing them that the idols are not enough. There's a lot that we could do talking about Paul's speech and, and what he gives them. And I'm not going to take all the time to dive into all those things today, but to hit a few of them. Um, but first, I'll say this. The first thing he does is he is telling them, he's building this bridge saying, seeking God is a good thing. I'm glad you're doing that. How do we know that? Because he walks around and says, hey, I see you're very religious. And this unknown God, let me tell you about him. He's knowable. He wants to be known. In fact, in verse 27, I don't have these verses on the screen. You don't have to put them up there. I can just read them. Um, but verse 27, it says, God did this so that they would seek him. 
and perhaps reach out to him and find him. God is knowable and wants to be known. You can and should seek God. It's a right thing to do. He's building a bridge there. But then he also tells them that creating your own God will fail you. And in verse 29, he says this, (coughs) excuse me, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Right? So what he's saying is creating your own God will fail you. Why are you making images and thinking that those things are somehow greater than you? That's backwards. Rather, the real, true, living God is the one who has made us. And he has left his trademark on us. We bear his image. And that means all of us are important. As image bearers of God, as offspring, like their poets said. And so Paul is doing a lot of affirming of things. And also correcting of things, saying, no, there is a God who created it all, who brought it all into being. And he also, then the third thing he does is he, he says, God is the life giver. And in verses 25 and 28, notice verse 25 says this, uh, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And in verse 28, for in him we live and move, and have our being. If you're an Epicurean, you're like, I just want to do life, and feel good, and passionate. Paul's saying, it's in God that you're going to live, and move, and have your being, your authentic being, realized. For the Epicureans, you know, that's what they need to know. The good life is found in God. He goes on, though, and it's not that just God is good, which he is, and seeking God is good, and God is the creator of all things, so you need to pay attention to him because because he's the one who started it all, and he's the life giver, yes, but God is also patient, but will bring justice. This is in verse 31. Let me read this to you. It says in verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This probably appeals to the Stoics, right? And it should appeal to the Epicureans too, but the Stoics who want justice, to know there's a day of justice coming, like, oh, okay. People sometimes ask me, why, if God is this good, and this powerful, there's still a lot of bad stuff that happens, so why doesn't he just fix everything now? And it's a good question. It's a fair question. And I don't know all the answers to that because I'm not God, but I can tell you some of the reasons the Bible tells us, and Paul gives one of them and says he has been patient. And he says it again in Timothy that, that God's wrath being delayed is his patience being exercised. I also want you to recognize when you ask that question, if you're asking that question, why doesn't God just fix everything now? What you're asking is for there to be no more suffering or evil or wars. You're asking for justice to be done. Put all wrongs to an end. Make everything right. Make life good and happy. 
That's not a bad thing to ask for. It's a good thing to ask for. But my question to you is, are you sure you're ready for that? Are you sure you're ready to be judged? Because that's what you're asking for. Yes, Jesus, come back. But with that comes judgment. Are you ready? Paul's saying to them, look, you've lived life fully in many ways, but are you ready for that judgment, for that justice to finally be done? And he says, there is indeed life after death. In verses 31 and 32, let me read these. I just read 31, let me read 32. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you more about this. Right, because that's different. And a lot of times in Greek life, the body was bad, but the spirit was good and would go on, but not the body. And Paul's talking about a literal bodily resurrection from the dead to the next life. It's essential because what he is doing is going back to where he started. Did you notice that in the beginning? He had been in the marketplace and around in the synagogues talking to, G- to people about Jesus and the resurrection. And now he comes back to it because it is essential. It is the thing, the central thing for the Christian faith. And it's important because Jesus rose from the dead proving there is life after death proving that we are going to have to give an account to that one who lives and judges the living and the dead, but also offers life after death to everyone. Life that is just and without war and without sorrow. And so he calls them in verse 30 to repent. He says, so repent now. And that's a question for us as we go into the series looking at our idols that litter our lives. Will we repent? And seek God. How do you view Christianity? Do you view it maybe kind of in an Epicurean way? An Epicurean pursuit of happiness through Christianity. Jesus will be my happy idol. Make everything good in life. If so, then you probably hope to find this guilt-free happiness to do whatever you want in life, no strings attached. Jesus will forgive me, it's fine, I'll just do whatever I want. You probably don't want to walk into the pain and suffering of others to help them because that's not really happy. You probably don't want to sacrifice your own happiness and your own time to help others. And, but you have to wrestle with what Jesus did and what Jesus said and called us to. That Jesus called us, actually, to take up our cross daily and follow him. Or maybe you view Christian life kind of from a stoic lens. And if you view it from a stoic lens, like of duty, then you probably are trying so hard to do what is right out of fear that God, because you're afraid that God will not accept you. You're probably thinking, okay, I do have satisfaction in life. I get satisfaction because when I have aims and responsibilities and things I go after and I do, I do them and I check them off and they're done and I can say, good, I did it. I completed my task. I did my best at what I was responsible for. But I would be willing to bet you probably don't have any really deep joy or deep delight in God. Because your philosophy of life is all about duty. And you miss the delight. You miss the joy. But in Jesus, you're accepted and approved of as God's beloved child without having to earn it. And that's the good news of the gospel. 
the gospel is not simply the middle ground, okay? It's not like, oh, here's the, the polar extreme of Epicureanism, and here's the polar extreme of Stoicism, and the gospel is just kind of the middle path, a third way in that way. That's not what the gospel is. It's both of those and more than that. The gospel is that it gives us great happiness in life, even in the midst of the painful parts, because our joy is deeper and is anchored to Christ and is eternal in that way, to endure suffering. It doesn't mean suffering's good, that we like it, but we can have joy in it and through it. The gospel empowers us to walk with people through, the, through their pain and have compassion on them. And not just simply tell them what's right or wrong or how they should do things, but to actually love them and care for them well. The gospel calls us to stand for what is right and to stand for justice. It provides for eternal happiness, not just happiness now, without any more suffering, where paradise is restored and everyone treats everybody else with dignity and honor because we all are made in God's image and we've all been redeemed by Jesus, the Savior, and we live in heaven together. That's what the gospel is going to, it says. For all those who are in Christ, that's the reality that we have. If you're not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not trusting him, you're not guaranteed of any of that. You're guaranteed of the opposite of that. More of this life and worse. Pain, suffering, sorrow, horror, judgment. Without end. No fix to all the wrongs. No deep joy. No peace. No lack of wars. But in Christ, you get all that. But how do we know that that can be ours? How do we know that that's ours? What Paul is saying is, this God is knowable. He's your judge. And his name is Jesus. And the reason that as Christians, you and I know it can be ours is because we know the judge. It's like standing up on American Idol and going, I know the judge. And he's already told me, I win. He's approved of me. He loves me and he gave himself for me. He sacrificed his life for me. The, victor is, the victory is mine because of the judge. I know the judge. Not long ago, I heard a church planter talking about some of the responsibility and the load and the weight that he was carrying and what he's doing and wondering if he would succeed and worried about failing and just always feeling like that nagging him. Um, but he expressed deep joy when he received a gift from his wife. It was um, simply an envelope that she had left for him. And he got the envelope and he opened it up. When he opened it up, it only had one word stamped on it. Approved. You see, Christian, in Jesus, your judge says, approved. And that should turn your duty into delight and your pursuit of happiness into holiness. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to recognize the idols that we all have, starting in my own heart and my own life. Would you help us to turn from those idols and turn to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.